0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2023 Absight podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like the Signia, Tri-Staple Smart Stapling Platform, and Ligature Vessel Sealer. But Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is to engineer the extraordinary. And with 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. All right, welcome back, it's AbSite 2023. As always, Behind the Knife is ready to help you dominate the exam with our 30 episode AbSite Review series and our AbSite Review book. We also wanna share with you what's up next for Behind the Knife. 2023 is going to be a banner year. We are investing big time in our platform and we are currently working on a brand new website and accompanying iOS and Android apps. The website and apps will include tons of useful features and will make it easier to access all of the exciting new content we are making. Speaking of content, we are expanding our oral board review resources with a general surgery oral board review book and oral board audio review courses for vascular surgery, colorectal surgery, and surgical oncology. We are also almost finished with an incredible new trauma video surgical atlas. This will include 24 beautifully shot and edited trauma video scenarios, many of which have never been captured on video before. For students, we are creating a comprehensive resource designed to help them dominate their surgery rotation. This is no small project and includes written content, original illustrations, audio, and video. We've also created our very own suture kit and knot board with high quality instructional videos for right and left-handed learners. Finally, we are well underway with a full makeover of the AbSite Review Series and book, both of which will be ready before the 2024 test. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to learn more, visit BehindTheKnife.org. Now, take a deep breath. You've got this.
1: All right. Colorectal part two for the ab side and the boards. This is a huge topic. We've broken it up into two. We're just trying to uh, give you those those key recommendations and those big topics that are going to help you out with the boards. Um, obviously, any one of these could be a podcast on their own. So, um, let's let's keep rolling with it. So, let's move on to our inflammatory bowel diseases. So, let's start with ulcerative colitis. Woo, what is ulcerative colitis and who does it affect?
2: Yeah. So, UC is a chronic inflammatory condition. It affects the rectum and extends pro Approximately, the key is that it spares the anus. Uh, It's a mucosal-based disease. It's contiguous, uh, and some characteristics that it has: it develops crypt abscesses and pseudopolyps.
1: Yeah, so a lot of there's a a lot of energy goes into really distinguishing ulcerative colitis from Crohn's disease. So those are kind of the you know those buzzwords, those key things that that is. That is characteristic of ulcerative colitis, Um, inflammatory condition from a rectum, extending proximally, mucosal, contiguous, crypt abscesses, pseudopolyps are all things that are characteristic. What are
2: some keys to management? Yeah, so most cases are managed medically with 15 to 30% of patients eventually requiring surgery. Uh, The mainstay for acute flares is steroids. um, And then for maintenance therapy, you want to use mesalamine or infliximab if resistant.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of a stepwise approach. Steroids, obviously, for your acute flares. mesalamine maintenance. Adding Aflixabab, um later for those for um, more resistant diseases. Kevin, what are some surgical indications for ulcerative
3: colitis? Uh, so some surgical indications. So patients that do not respond to medical management. So medical intractability. They're on uh, high doses of steroids and uh, immunologics, and they're still not getting better, or they just don't want to be on those medications. This would be an indication. Uh, malignancy or any kind of polyps. With dysplasia, uh, would be an indication, and then other complications such as stricture, perforation, or fulminant/slash toxic colitis. Okay, and you you mentioned medical intractability. What do we mean when we say medical intractability for
1: Crohn's or for ulcerative colitis?
2: So, for medical intractability, you want to think about patients who are worsening on medical therapy, or or just simply not getting better. And this is somewhat vague, but essentially. it means that the patient cannot achieve an adequate quality of life despite being on that mesalamine for maintenance plus the infliximab uh, as well as the steroids for the acute flares. They're just not getting better. Additionally, uh, as a separate Component that's a big key is any amount of growth failure in children. That's another indication for uh, medical intractability.
1: Yeah, like you said, somewhat vague. The growth failure in children that's definitely a big one. Um, patients who aren't getting better despite medical maximum medical therapy, or the risk of chronic medical therapy isn't tolerated. Obviously, you can't keep somebody on steroids forever. There's there's side effects to that. Um, another one would be the disabling extraintestinal manifestations that may respond to colectomy, such as your arthropathies. Uh, Erythema erythi- Uh Kevin, what about uh, you know, those hepatobiliary manif- m- manifestations? Do those get better with a uh, colectomy or not?
3: The hepatobiliary manifestations generally do not get better after colectomy. Right. No, the hepatobiliary are the ones is is the one that does not get better
1: um, after performing a total abdominal colectomy. So that's an important one to know. Which is primary
3: sclerosing cholangitis. Correct.
1: So we talked to me a little bit about, uh, we mentioned earlier that malignancy would be an indication for a procedure with in a patient with ulcerative colitis, uh, talk to what's the association between colorectal malignancy and ulcerative colitis.
2: Uh, yeah, so ulcerative colitis does um, purport an increased risk of developing malignancy later on. And this is why Kevin mentioned any degree of dysplasia even is an indication for a surgical removal. Um So for surveillance, uh, the unique recommendations are essentially any patient with extensive colitis uh, that's proximal to the splenic flexure, you want to do endoscopy after eight years of disease and then every one to two years following that. Uh, when you do these endoscopies, uh, make sure you do four-quadrant random biopsies at 10-centimeter intervals throughout the disease segment of the colon, along with any directed biopsies of suspicious lesions.
1: Yep, so that's, that's very important. Those are your surveillance recommendations for uh, extent for... um Ulcerative colitis in in patients who have uh, pancolitis, so proximal to the the splenic flexure. After eight years of disease, endoscopy every one to two years, your four-quadrant random biopsies. Kevin, what if you see, Wook mentioned it briefly, but what if you see high-grade dysplasia on
3: your surveillance biopsies? Uh, That would be an indication for a colectomy.
1: Yeah, and specifically, not just colectomy, what's the specific operation you need to do in that? A total proctocolectomy with or without an IPAA. Right, not just a colectomy, a total proctocolectomy for high-grade dysplasia on your surveillance biopsy for ulcerative colitis, proctocolectomy. Okay, so let's move on to some of the different surgical treatments for ulcerative colitis. So, woo, let's say you're in an emergency emergency setting, so your your toxic colitis, your perforation in in a patient with UC, what's your procedure?
2: Uh, so here, I'd start with a total or subtotal colectomy with an end ileostomy. Uh, you can later perform a completion proctectomy and IPAA if you need to, but in an emergent setting, start with a total or subtotal colectomy.
1: Right. At that point, you're, you're controlling your contamination. So a total or subtotal colectomy, end ileostomy. Later, you can do your reconstruction. You can do your completion proctectomy. Um, but what, how about, Kevin, in a more kind of elective setting? What are your surgical options?
3: So in the elective setting, uh, they're generally obviously not ill, so you can actually do the full procedure at once. You can do the total proctocolectomy with an end ileostomy, so you get the whole colon and rectum out of there. Um, this removes all the pathologic tissue, um, but this would uh, commit the patient to a lifelong ileostomy. Um, so what's a more common procedure that we're seeing right, these so, days? So if it's a young patient, generally under 50 years old with good uh, sphincter complex and no history of um, any sort of incontinence, you could do a total proctocolectomy with a iliopouch anal anastomosis. So this has the advantage of they don't have a stoma, but they may have complications related to their pouch, but most can achieve a good quality of life. Yeah, and you mentioned that
1: very important. They must have good baseline continence prior to perform prior to constructing your pouch. Uh, and, and another key thing is, you know, we talked a lot. As I said before, a lot of energy goes into distinguishing ulcerative colitis from Crohn's disease. But you have to be sure that you see and not Crohn's because the diseased ileum is uh, is does not make for a good ileal pouch. Um, there's one other option out there. Woo, what is that?
2: Yeah, so another option would be a total abdominal colectomy with an ileo-rectal anastomosis. But really, these are only used in highly select cases. Uh, you absolutely must have uninvolved rectum, which is pretty rare in the setting of ulcerative colitis. Uh, and the rectum is still at risk for ongoing disease and cancer. So you need specific annual surveillance uh, for the residual rectal cuff.
1: Yeah, so I think the most common. I think the answer on the test is generally going to be the total proctocolectomy with IPAA. As long as you have, it's it's a good option for that patient. As Kevin said, they had good continence or younger patients, that type of thing. Certainly, these others are options, but that's that's going to be your most common procedure you're going to see. Okay, so let's move on to Crohn's disease. So, woo, how do we distinguish ulcerative colitis from Crohn's? What are some some key characteristics of Crohn's disease?
2: Uh, so again, Crohn's disease is chronic, uh, but the key differences are it is a transmural inflammation, uh, it's segmental, so not continuous like UC was, uh, there's a characteristic creeping fat, uh, and then there are several different phenotypes that you want to keep in mind. So there's an inflammatory variant, there's a fibrostenotic variant, and there's penetrating. And these can also overlap and change, but overall, three overarching phenotypes. So, Kevin, what are some
3: extra intestinal manifestations of uh, Crohn's disease? So, commonly you can see arthritis and arthalgias. You can see megaloblastic anemia, and the reason for that is they have difficulty um, with absorption of B12 in the terminal ileum because it's chronically inflamed. Uh, You can see uveitis, and then uh, the kind of bored answer is erythema nodosum. Okay. And so how about uh, med- what's medical
1: management of Crohn's disease? It's similar to UC, but just let's restate it uh, just so we have it down.
3: Right. So uh, medical management is steroids for acute flares. Uh, a lot of times with mild disease, you can manage them with 5-ASA slash mesalamine uh, for maintenance uh, and then more severe cases that don't respond to that. You can have them on Remicade or other bio- newer biologics for resistant disease.
1: Okay. And so we talked about surgery for UC for patients who can't tolerate or don't want to be on lifelong medical therapy, that we have a
2: curative surgery. Is that the same for Crohn's disease, Wu? No. So unlike UC, there's no surgical cure. So instead, surgery is reserved for complications of the disease like strictures, obstructions, uh, perforation, fistula, or, or for malignancy. Exactly. So surgery for Crohn's disease is reserved only for complications.
1: Those things you said. And a key surgical uh, principle is to preserve as much small bowel as possible uh, because these patients will often require multiple resections over the course of a lifetime. So Kevin, so um, let's talk a little bit more about that. So a, a common complication is strictures. So how do you want to manage your symptomatic stricture in a patient with Crohn's disease?
3: So these are patients that, um, you can, you have two options. Uh, you can either do a resection, which is commonly performed if it's a very short segment of disease. But if you have multiple segments of disease that would uh, potentially be debilitating to resect that much bowel, you can do a stricturoplasty. Before we get there, like I said, we always start with the least invasive and go to
1: more invasive. Is there another option other than surgery for patients with a symptomatic stricture?
3: Right. At advanced centers, they can uh, try endoscopic dilation.
1: Yeah. If you can reach it endoscopically, you can try an endoscopic dilation with these strictures. But then uh, if if you can't, um, you can move on to either your resection or stricturoplasty. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Um, uh, what are some options for stricturoplasty? How do you choose which procedure you're going to do?
3: This is very testable and, and has been a question many times where they'll give you different types of strictures and you have to tell them what type of stricturoplasty you'd do. So if you're near a computer right now, I would start Googling these and, and know what they look like and what they're used for, but we'll try our best to describe it. Um, so if you have a very short stricture, you can do the Heinecke miculate stricturoplasty. And w- what is that? That is where you make a longitudinal incision on the stricture and then you close it transversely.
1: Okay. What would be, what's roughly the size stricture
3: that you would want to do that for? Less than 10 centimeters.
1: Yeah. So I, I think you move from, if you have an isolated short segment disease, you can do resection and that's really the most common report, most commonly performed. But if you have multiple strictures, um, you're trying to preserve bowel length, these stricturoplasties. For short strictures, the heinecke mikulicz stricturoplasty. What about for medium length strictures?
3: So the ones that are 10, 20 centimeters, you can consider the Finney stricturoplasty. Okay, and can you do your best to describe that? Yeah, this is where you uh, you take the stricture and you kind of fold it on itself, and then you open the bowel on either end, and then sew a common wall together um, to make that it all one piece of bowel. Okay,
1: what about for longer strictures? Let's say you have a, a long segment, a twenty-plus centimeter segment of of small bowel that's uh, strictured.
3: So uh, this is kind of similar to the Finney stricturoplasty. It's, it's sometimes called a side-to-side isoperistaltic stricturoplasty. Yeah, or...
1: I'm not going to make you try and describe that one. But yeah. again, like if you, like Kevin said, if you I would start Googling this if you're near a computer, just so you have an idea in your head of what these look like and what your different options are. Okay, so what are some other kind of key, um, what are some key surgical principles when we're performing your stricturoplasty?
2: Yeah, there are actually two key surgical principles that you do not want to forget. Uh, The first is make sure you biopsy the strictured segment. Uh, You absolutely do not want to inadvertently leave behind a malignancy uh, for the sake of purely preserving bowel length. The second principle is... If there is any evidence of malnutrition, uh, inflammation, perforation, fistula, or again suspicion for malignancy, these are contraindications to strictureplasty. So again, don't just jump to it simply because you want to preserve bowel. You want to remember these principles as well. Absolutely,
1: you want to keep those things in mind. Okay, so let's move on to uh, talk about some of our different colorectal malignancies. Let's start with colon cancer. Uh, First, let's start with some different uh, screening and surveillance recommendations because these are, A, they're important to know in clinical practice, and two, they show up frequently on tests. So, what's your surveillance recommendation, Wu, for an asymptomatic patient who, who you deem to be average risk for colon cancer?
2: So this patient can start colonoscopy at age 50 and repeat every 10 years if normal. Uh, Alternatively, if the patient prefers, they can do a sigmoidoscopy every five years plus fecal cold blood testing annually. Yep. So, that's just your average risk patient. That's all comers out there. Those
1: are the recommendations. Colonoscopy starting at age 50, repeat every 10 years if normal. Um, Okay. Kevin, how about if you have a first-degree relative with colorectal cancer or uh, adenomas diagnosed before the age of 60? Or let's say you have two first-degree relatives
3: um, diagnosed with colon cancer at any age. So, the general recommendation for these patients is to start with a colonoscopy every five in in Decrease the interval to every five years. Five years, and you want to start at the age of forty, or ten years prior to the age of the youngest effective relative, whichever is first.
1: Yeah. So those are patients that are a little bit increased risk. So they have first degree relative, like I said, before age sixty, or two first degree relatives at any age. Colonoscopy at five years starting at age forty. Okay. Woo. Next, you have a first degree relative diagnosed with colon cancer after age sixty or two second-degree relatives, what do you want to do for those patients?
2: So I'd start uh, with colonoscopy at age 40 and do it every 10 years. Yeah, so just a little bit different. So first-degree relative over age
1: 60, again, starting at 40, but then the interval is every 10 years. Um, Kevin, you have a secondary relative, uh, one second-degree relative with colorectal cancer.
3: So these would be just screened as average risk?
1: Right. So that those are not increased risk. They don't require earlier colonoscopy. They don't require uh, increased intervals. So colonoscopy at age 50 and then every 10 years. So that's for a second degree relative. Okay, so uh, Wu, how about FAP
2: patients? First off, what is FAP and how do you screen those patients? So FAP is familial adenomatous polyposis. Uh, For these patients, you want to start very early at age 10 to 12 and you're going to do an annual sigmoidoscopy. Okay. How about uh, so? How about
1: your other hereditary? So your your hereditary non polyposis colorectal cancer. How do you want to screen those patients?
2: Yeah, for HNPCC, you're going to do a colonoscopy every one to two years, starting at age twenty to twenty-five, or ten years prior to the youngest diagnosed relative. Uh,
1: okay. So yeah, those are those are all a little bit painful, but they're all very important to know. I, again, both clinically, they're important to know, and they these will show up on tests. They'll, they'll give you a patient. They'll say when. How do you want to screen these patients? <laughs> all right. So Kevin, let's move on to patients with a personal history of adenomas so let's say you perform a colonoscopy and and this is what you find you need to know what to tell the patient so let's say you find one to two tubular one to two small tubular adenomas Uh, what's the repeat uh, colonoscopy interval for those patients
3: so small adenomas less than two and less than five millimeters in size repeat colonoscopy in five years
1: yep so that's a couple one to two tubular adenoma benign tubular adenomas they need a repeat colonoscopy in five years let's say you find three or more adenomas what do you want to tell that patient
3: that is when they need to get an earlier uh, repeat colonoscopy. That would be at three years. Yep, three or more is at three years.
1: Um, what's a, Let's say you find an advanced adenoma. First off, what is an advanced
3: adenoma and what do those patients need? There's a few characteristics that define advanced adenoma. Some of them are greater than one centimeter, high grade, uh, dysplasia, or villous elements. And these patients, you'd want to also get a repeat colonoscopy at three years.
1: Uh, okay, let's say your pathology report comes back on, uh, you find a little polyp, uh, you form an endoscopic resection, and it comes back as hyperplastic polyp. What do you tell that patient? 10 years. Yep, so that's considered normal. So uh, consider to have a normal exam. Hyperplastic polyps do not need increased uh, screening.
3: And I, so, and just remember, one to two tubular adenomas, just a single tubular adenoma, get a repeat colonoscopy in five years. I think that's highly testable. Yep,
1: tubular adenoma, five years, hyperplastic polyp is normal. So, another thing you'll see pop up uh, frequently are the management of malignant polyps. So, uh, it'll ask you if you can manage these endoscopically, if they need a
2: resection. So, we'll, what are some key principles when it comes to that? Yeah, so you're not necessarily obligated to a surgical resection. You want to think about a couple criteria uh, to see if this polyp can be managed endoscopically. So, first, can the polyp be removed in one piece? Uh, second, are the resection margins clear free of dysplasia or cancer? Uh, Third, the lesion is well or moderately differentiated with no uh, lymphovascular invasion. And fourth, this is limited submucosal invasion. So cancer cells uh, two millimeters or less past the muscularis mucosa. If all four of those criteria are met, then you can manage these endoscopically. However, for malignant polyps that do not meet these criteria or cannot be removed via endoscopic techniques, uh, you are obligated to do an oncologic resection
1: yep so the, yep those are those are great so that's the key to managing endoscopic management of malignant polyps it can be removed in one piece the margins are free of dysplasia or cancer it has to be well um or moderately differentiated with no lymphovascular invasion and limited uh submucosal invasion so cancer cells less than two centimeters two millimeters past the muscularis mucosa um, anything that doesn't meet those criteria they need a formal oncologic resection
3: and i've seen uh it they they'll give you so a pedunculated polyp it can have submucosal invasion and the very limited submucosal invasion but if you have a sessile polyp any submucosal invasion given the nature of a sessile polyp is an indication for a colectomy
1: Alright, so let's just jump right in and continue with colon cancer. So staging, staging, This is staging is painful but this is one of the ones that you absolutely need to know. So woo, walk us through the tumor stage
2: and the T-staging for your colon cancers. Yeah, so the T-stage for colon cancer, uh, so TIS or in situ involves the lamina propria only. A T1 invades the submucosa, T2 invades the muscularis propria, T3 invades through the muscularis propria and into the pericolonic tissue, and T4a penetrates the serosa. T4b invades or is adherent to surrounding structures. Okay, keep going. Nodal staging. What are your end stages for colorectal cancer? Yeah, so first we got to note that positive lymph nodes are defined as a 0.2 millimeter deposit of cancer cells. Uh, N1 disease is one to three nodes. N2a is four or more nodes and n2b is seven or more nodes yep one to
1: three four and seven is how that's broken up okay m staging m staging once again i love the m staging m zero uh no distant metastasis m1 distant metastasis um so when it comes to staging there's a lot of different subtypes there's stage 3a 3b 3c um important to know but for the boards i would at least know you know your stage one or or is your t1 or t2 T1 to T2 lesion without any node. So that's uh, if the tumor invades the submucosa or the tumor invades the muscularis um, so that's T1, 2, N0, M0. That's stage 1. Stage 2, you're moving into your more advanced T stages, T3, T4. But again, no nodes, no metastasis. Stage 3 is when you start seeing nodes pop up. So any T stage, um, you have positive nodes, no metastasis. And stage 4 is obviously distant metastasis. So just know that basic breakdown um, is, good enough, is good enough for the boards. Uh, when it comes to uh, your oncologic resection, uh, Kevin, what kind of margins are you shooting for?
3: So for this, you want to have uh... Uh, ideally a five to seven
1: centimeter margin yeah that's a pretty wide margin so why is that important
3: right this is to ensure that you have an adequate lymphadenectomy so if you're getting this big of a margin your lymph node supply to this area is likely going to be adequate
1: another key to that not just the margin but is also taking the vascular supply correct because if you take the vascular supply you're going to you're going to get your adequate lymphadenectomy Um, how many what's the minimum number of nodes you need in your lymphadenectomy for colon cancer
3: Uh, Very key and it's 12.
1: Yep. The number is 12. You need 12 nodes. Uh, So something that's frequently asked is how you want to manage a patient who presents with stage four
2: disease. So uh, how how do you think about these patients, Wu? So I like to break these apart into kind of three broad categories. Uh, One is resectable. Two is it might be resectable if you're able to downstage it with chemotherapy, and a third would be unresectable disease. So let's start with the unresectable patients. In these patients, surgery is really only indicated for palliative purposes. So if they have obstruction, bleeding, or perforation, you could do palliative surgery. Uh, Or if they're obstructed, you can also uh, do stenting. That's a a possible option, uh, which might be preferable to colectomy or diversion. Uh, Looking at the resectable patients, so in medically fit patients, curative resection of hepatic and or pulmonary metastases can be performed. And so for these patients, you would give a sequence of chemotherapy and resect the primary tumor in addition to the metastasis. For the patients who have potentially resectable disease, uh, so again, these are patients where giving chemotherapy might downstage the patient, Uh, you want to give preoperative full FOX and then reevaluate the resectability based on the response.
1: Yeah. So unresectable is easy. You, 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 those patients are is reserved only for the palliation, uh, resectable, uh, you know, there's a lot out there about how you, how you deal with metastasis, whether you deal with the primary first, whether you deal with the, the metastasis first, whether you deal with them at the same time, whether you give preoperative chemotherapy, that's getting a little bit into the weeds and that's going to vary widely by surgeon, institution, and the individual patient and tumor characteristics. However, for me personally on, on the exam, if I were, if I were given the answer, uh, um, or if I were giving a resectable colon cancer that has hepatic metastasis, uh, I would give a short three-month course of preoperative full FOX therapy if it's an option, resect, and then three months of post,
3: post-op uh, full FOX therapy is what I would do. So you would resect both the colon cancer and the hepatic metastasis at the same time?
1: Uh, that's going de- to, like I said, that's going to depend a lot on the tumor. If it's a little, if it's a, if it's a small tumor hanging out in segment two, three of the liver, um, I think that's an acceptable answer to do in both at the same time. Um, uh, I don't think that's going to, they are going to get into the weeds with that on the exam because it's just so variable depending on the individual tumor characteristics. And it, again, it depends on the institution and what you have available
3: and the particular surgeon. Yeah, I, I would choose yes, resect both on, on the abs. I feel like it, it could come up. But I think if it's easily resectable, um, you do both at the same time
2: okay what about adjuvant therapy who gets adjuvant therapy so in general anyone with stage three and above so even a single positive node or any M, m1 disease
1: yeah and there's a lot of some evidence coming out there that adjuvant therapy may be beneficial for those high risk stage two diseases those are those t4 uh, lesions if they present with perforation obstruction poorly differentiated or you have an inadequate less than 12 nodal harvest um, however yeah for the boards i would stick to adjuvant therapy for stage three and above disease and and what's your what's your adjuvant
2: uh, uh, regimen. So standard is full fox for six months. That's uh, folinic acid, essentially leucovorin, five uh, FU and oxalopatin. Uh Additionally, you can do three months pre op and then three months post op. Yep, perfect. So full fox therapy for six
3: months. Uh, okay, let's move on to rectal cancer. But wait, what about radiation? Well, I don't know, Kevin. What about radiation for colon cancer? Radiation is not indicated in any colon cancer, especially for the boards.
1: Yeah, for colon cancers, you want to stay away from radiation. We're going to get into a radiotherapy for rectal cancer uh, here in a couple of minutes, so that's a perfect segue into our rectal cancer discussion. Um, so, Wu, how do you want to approach these patients? These rectal cancers. How do you want to? How do you want to work them up? <laughs>
2: Yeah. So preoperatively, you want to get labs to include a CEA level. You want to do a rigid proctoscopy to gauge the level of the tumor. Uh, and then you want to do a CT with chest, abdomen, and pelvis uh, for complete staging. Uh, and finally, you can do endorectal ultrasound or rectal MRI, and that gives you a good assessment of the circumferential resection margin.
1: Yeah, so talk to me a little bit about that. So that's a little bit different than, than colon cancer. You want to do, you know, all your things, get your CEA, um, you know, your your CT oncology, your chest, abdomen, pelvis. But the specific things you mentioned, those endoscopic ultrasounds or the rectal MRI, the rigid proctoscopy. Why,
2: why is that important? So the CRM is the total distance between the tumor and the mes- and the mesorectal fascia. It's a very important prognostic indicator.
3: And you just want to make sure that a a big reason for the indirectal ultrasound and the rectal MRI is to determine the T stage of the cancer.
1: Yeah. So a lot lot to unpack there, but definitely rigid proctoscopy because you need to get a good idea of what level you're dealing with. You're dealing with rectal cancer uh, because that might affect the the procedure you're going to do or how you're going to approach this patient. And as Kevin said, it's very, very important to know your T stage and know your N stage. So why, Kevin? Why is it very so important to know that with rectal cancer? Uh,
3: It. Will determine what type of therapy they get, whether neoadjuvant versus surgical upfront. Yeah. So, who gets neoadjuvant uh, chemo rads in rectal cancer? So, locally advanced tumor of the mid or distal rectum, uh, T3 or greater, or any node positive disease will definitely get neoadjuvant.
1: Yep. That's what you need to know for the board. So, T3 disease or any end disease gets neoadjuvant chemo rads. And what's your chemo
3: rad regimen? So this is where you're going to get uh, 5,000 gray of radiotherapy delivered concurrently while they are undergoing uh, 5-FU chemotherapy delivered over five to six weeks.
1: Yeah, 5,000 centigrade uh, concurrently with 5-FU over five to six weeks. And then when do you want to perf- uh, perform your resection after neoadjuvant therapy? <laughs>
3: generally two to three months after they finish this neoadjuvant therapy. And I think it's important to note that the uh, 5FU is actually a sensitizer for the radiation is uh, some things that I've seen uh, come up. Oh, perfect. Good good point.
1: Um, so, okay, let's
3: start talking about some surgical
1: management of rectal cancer. First off, Wu, uh, you'll hear about local excision for rectal cancer.
2: When is local excision an option? So in select patients who have T1 lesions without high-risk features, so these are well to moderately differentiated lesions with no lymphovascular or perineural invasion, uh, less than 3 centimeters in size, and less than a third of the circumference of the bowel lumen. Uh yeah, so
1: T1 lesions, no lymphovascular perineural invasion, well to moderately differentiated, less than three centimeters, less than one third. It needs to be all of those things before you even consider local um
2: excision. So what what's the big you know, what's the big drawback of a local excision? The biggest drawback is that you're not able to pathologically examine the regional lymph nodes. Yeah, exactly, and and so that's why you know having a frank discussion
1: with the patient uh, is important with this. So, uh they need to be able to understand that there's up to a twenty percent local recurrence rate after a local excision for a T1 lesion. Uh, so in that for that situation, if the patient's a good surgical candidate, I would probably lean to answering a formal resection because because you get that formal oncologic resection, you can evaluate the lymph nodes. But you may see this show up on the board, so it, it it's not necessarily a wrong answer to answer local excision for those lesions. Um, and in reality, even some T2 lesions are being locally excised in very poor surgical candidates, but definitely wouldn't answer that way on the boards. Uh, okay, so what's your, uh, Kevin, what's your approach to a rectal cancer uh, that, let's say, it's in the upper third of the rectum? What's your, what's your surgical approach for that?
3: Uh, so these, you're going to be able to uh, preserve uh, their rectum and their continents and so you're gonna be able to do a low interior section uh focusing on a quality mesorectal dissection with a five centimeter distal margin
1: yeah so you want a tumor specific mesorectal excision with a five centimeter margin and an estmosis
2: okay good um how about woo if it's in the mid to lower third of the rectum yeah so this is where you start to get into that zone where uh, a lar may not be possible and you may need to think about apr but uh you're still going to do that total mesorectal excision as part of an LAR or an APR. Uh, and with the TME, you're going to get 2 centimeter distal margins ideally, but if it's really distal, even 1 centimeter is okay.
1: Yep. So for your lower your lower rectal cancers, you need that. You really need that total mesorectal excision as part of either an LAR and APR. Um, it, with your total mesorectal excision, two centimeter margins is if ideal. If you're really encroaching on those sphinct- on that sphincter, one centimeter is okay. Um, but certainly, if you can't get that margin, the patient needs uh, an APR. Okay. So Kevin, for adjuvant therapy, uh, so who with rectal cancer who gets adjuvant therapy and what's your regimen?
3: So it's similar to colon cancer, um, and you're going to use full FOX again, and you want to give adjuvant therapy to patients that have stage three or greater who did not receive neo-adjuvant therapy.
1: Yeah, so let's, let's reiterate that point. So we mentioned earlier the patients who are stage three or people who have T three disease or any N disease are going to get new adjuvant therapy. But now you're saying patients who are stage three who did not receive new adjuvant therapy get adjuvant therapy. Unpack that a little bit for me. What are we saying?
3: Right. So on their initial preoperative workup, there were they were not noted to be node positive or uh, stage three, but on pathologic examination, um, some patients are upstaged. So the pathologic stage would be. Uh, Stage three, and then they would need adjuvant therapy.
1: Yeah. So in other words, the patients who are understaged who present with stage three disease and make sense are going to get adjuvant therapy. How about patients who
3: received uh, new adjuvant therapy? Wh- which of those patients get adjuvant therapy? Right. So high high risk stage two and stage three patients uh, will also get adjuvant therapy.
1: Yeah. So we're really assuming that the 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 stage two disease is a result of downstaging by new adjuvant therapy. So those patients also get adjuvant therapy.
3: Okay. So
1: moving, uh, moving down the line. So we've talked about colon cancer. We've talked about rectal cancer. Let's talk about your anal squamous neoplasms. So, uh, these can be a little bit confusing because there's a lot of histologic variants. So what are some, uh, some variants that you're likely
2: to see in the stem of a question, Will? The variants that you're looking for are cloacogenic, basaloid, Epidermoid and mucoepidermoid. Yeah, and it's kind of painful, but you have
1: to know those because they're not going to tell you that a patient has an anal squa- squamous neoplasm. They're going to say that they, you get a biopsy and you see an epidermoid uh, lesion. So you need to know these because they're going to try and trick you. Um, they're going to give you, like I said, they're giving an anal mass. It was biopsied uh, that you're, you have to recognize that you're dealing with really anal squamous cell cancer.
2: Yeah, they're going to try to get you to answer an APR, but that is not the correct answer with these
1: patients. Yeah. So, so what are these patients? Why is that? What are these patients? How do you to treat these patients? Because they primarily need chemoradiotherapy up front. Right. So chemo chemoradioth- chemoraz is going to be the answer, not APR. So you need to know those histologic variants because they will try to trick you. Um, so what are some associations with squamous, anal squamous cancer?
2: Uh, the key are HPV serotypes 16 and 18. Additionally, there's a higher incidence in immunosuppressed patients. So um, let's talk a little bit about anal intraepithelial neoplasm, so AIN. This is a precursor
1: to squamous cell cancer. There's a lot of confusing classification systems out there, but how can we break
3: that down to understand it? So there's a few things you need to know. Uh, AIN 1, 2, and 3 correspond to low, moderate, and high-grade dysplasia, respectively. So low-grade AIN is 1 and 2, high-grade is 3.
1: Yeah, you'll see that in the, in the literature, you'll see that broken down in a number of confusing ways, but I, I think that makes the most, most sense. So low grade AIN is AIN 1, 2, high grade AIN, AIN type 3. So, woo, you mentioned that the primary treatment for squamous cell cancer of the anal canal is chemo rads. Um, I, I, the, most people probably know this by the NIGRO protocol.
2: Um, just, but what is that? Yeah, the Nigro Protocol is a 5-FU mitomycin C and 3000 centigrade of XRT and in reality multiple regimens exist, but this is a standard one. Yeah, it's way more complicated than that uh,
1: as most things in, in uh, surgical oncology are. But uh, that's the classic, that's the Nigro Protocol, It's the one everybody knows. That's the one that uh, you should know and be able to rattle off. Um, Okay, so we say you don't treat these patients with APR, but let's say you treat them with the nigra protocol or some variant, um, and they have either persistent uh, squamous cell cancer after treatment, or let's say they have a recurrence, how do you manage those patients? Yeah, these patients you would need to do an APR. Yeah, so those are the patients that get a salvage APR. Um, Okay, so when we talked earlier about how important it is to know your anal rectal anatomy, uh, we talked about the anal margin. So what defines the anal margin, Wu?
2: So that's going to be 5 centimeters extending radially from the mucosquamous junction. Okay. And so let's say you have a squamous cell cancer of the anal margin.
1: Do those patients get the nigra protocol or how do you treat those patients? Uh, No, you can actually treat these like a skin cancer with wide local excision. Correct. Uh, So once again, just important to know the anatomy, those are the ways that they're going to try and trip you up when it talks about uh, squamous cell cancer of the anal canal. What about treatment of like, Kevin, you broke down that uh, low grade AIN, that high grade AIN. How do you want to treat those patients?
3: So overall, it has a low rate of conversion to squamous cell cancer, but it is higher in immunosuppressed patients. So several local treatments can be used. You can use uh, local therapies such as topical imiquimod, topical uh, 5-FU, photodynamic therapy, and targeted destruction. But probably most important part of any of these treatments is close to clinical follow up with surveillance every four to six months.
1: Yeah, it's really hard to predict which which one of those. There's a high, we know there's a higher conversion rate in patients who are like HIV patients or patients who are immunocompromised. Um, overall, though, it's a pretty low conversion rate. There's a lot of local therapies out there. Uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence favoring one over the other. And probably, like you said, the most important thing is the, the close uh, surveillance and being on a close surveillance regimen to
3: to document any of those conversions. Right. In high risk patients, these are kind of the patients you do the, what they call the anal pap smear. Uh, Jason, what about melanoma in, uh, the anal canal? So anal melanoma, uh, is not uncommon. So, uh,
1: those patients are treated typically with a resection. So an APR. All right, so that, that uh is wrapping up our colorectal review for the abside and the boards. It's a huge topic. Um it, it's a lot to cover, but we tried to break it down to what's most relevant for uh the abside and the boards. So let's wrap it up with our uh quick hits, rapid fire segment. So woo. Let's say you have a transverse colon cancer with local invasion of the head of the pancreas and
2: no evidence of metastatic disease. How do you treat that patient? So, this would be an unblock resection. You would need to do a Whipple with an extended hemicolectomy. Right. So,
1: that's not, that's not unresectable disease. So, if local invasion, uh, you do an unblocked resection, even if that means doing a Whipple. Uh, so, Kevin, let's say you have an isolated peritoneal
3: carcinomatosis uh, secondary to colon cancer. How do you treat that patient? So carcinomatosis is considered widespread metastasis. However, if isolated, um, you can do cytoreductive surgery and intraperitoneal chemotherapy. Perfect. Uh, that's your those are your high pack uh, protocols. Uh, so, woo. Let's say you have rectal
1: cancer. They undergo neoadjuvant therapy, and it looks like they have a complete clinical response.
2: Um, what do you, do those patients still need a resection? Uh, yes, they do. They still require resection because the current imaging, the CT, MRI, PET, uh, can't reliably predict a complete pathologic response. Yeah, that's a big question. How do you know you have a complete
1: clinical response if you don't have a pathology specimen? So, a little bit controversial, but especially on the boards, those definitely patients still need a resection. Uh, Kevin, uh, so you have a, you're have in clinic, you have a patient that's rever- re- referred for a hemorrhoid. However, on exam, you find a one centimeter palpable mass of the anal canal. You perform a biopsy, uh, appropriately so, and it returns as a uh, epidermoid carcinoma. Uh,
3: what do you want to do with that patient? For this patient, I would do uh, primary chemo radiotherapy such as the Nigro Protocol. This is a variant of squamous cell carcinoma.
1: Yep. That's why you have to know those different histologic variants uh, because that's the way they're going to ask that question. An epidermoid carcinoma or basaloid or one of those. Um, and you have to recognize that squamous cell and that gets chemo rads, not a resection. Woo. Uh, you have a patient who had had a prior proctocolectomy with ileal pouch anal anastomosis for ulcerative colitis. He presents with fever, pelvic pain, increased frequency of stools, and you do a flexible endoscopy, which shows mucosal inflammation
2: of the ileal pouch What's your diagnosis? Uh pouchitis. What's your treatment? So I'll start with antibiotics, ciprofloxal, and uh, supportive care. What's another option? So if the patient does not respond to antibiotics, next line would be budesonide enemas. Okay.
1: So let's say you have a patient that has either recurrent or
2: chronic pouchitis. What are you thinking then? Yeah, that makes you think of the patient uh, being misdiagnosed, and this patient actually has Crohn's disease and not ulcerative colitis. Good, good.
1: Um, and what about for your patient that has refractory pouchitis um, uh, and it's just not getting better, or they just can't live with it anymore? What what do sometimes you have to do with these patients?
2: That would warrant a pouch excision and ileostomy. Right. Sometimes you have to think about taking your pouch down, and
1: and, and maybe the patient's quality. Life would be better with an end ileostomy. Um, that's a, it's a, certainly a difficult decision, uh, Kevin. So during a laparoscopic exploration for presumed acute appendicitis, uh, your appendix appears normal, but the TI looks inflamed.
3: What do you what are you thinking then? So this patient has likely Crohn's disease, um, but if the cecum is uninvolved, I would do an appendectomy to prevent future diagnostic confusion. <laughs> If the cecum is inflamed, I would leave the appendix in place. Either way, treat medically for acute Crohn's flare.
1: Yeah, that's so that common cause that comes up. If if the, and it's not an uncommon situation to find yourself in. So the appendix appears normal. If the cecum appears normal, still take the appendix. Um, if the cecum's inflamed, back away slowly. Um, and either way, you treat those patients for, for their Crohn's flare.
0: All right, so that does it. That's colorectal for the abside and the board's. Thanks for listening and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2023 AbSite. site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the Absite. site.